0: The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Well, good morning, everybody. Man, I, I was a little nervous when I came up here that my voice might be gone because I was singing my guts out at that last song because, man, I could sing at the top of my lungs about the all-sufficiency of Christ forever and ever Amen. because I need to hear that because I need to be reminded. Amen? Yeah. Uh, well, um, this week I'm wrapping up this round of our parables sermon series. Um, And I'll say this, I'm glad that this is not a fifth Sunday, because I can promise you I will not be 15 minutes. Uh, (laughs) But I am going to try to not be super long. Super long. Uh, Anyways, um, this week, though, we're going to look at the parable of the rich fool. And the crowd goes wild. Yeah! (sighs) Because everybody really likes to talk about money. I I know, I know. Actually, it's it's not really about money. It's it's about something so much more exciting, something so much deeper. Uh, it's about our attitude and how we use our money and our possessions. Wait, wait. No? Oh, I, okay. I thought that's where everyone was going to cheer, but I guess not there either. But anyways, uh, so this is a bit of a, a tough parable. Not... Not necessarily tough because it's, it's hard to understand. It's tough because we don't like it. <laughs> uh, I'm not alone in this, though. So t- Tim Keller uh, preached a sermon on this parable, and he began re- by reading the verses, and then when he had read the verses, he said jokingly, and this is God's word, unfortunately. Now, because this is such a a scary, air quotes, topic, and it's going to be heavy at times, I'm going to try my best to be like Muhammad Ali and and float like a butterfly and sting like a bee, meaning I'm going to try to be quick and let the Lord pop in where he sees fit and bust you upside the head. (laughs) Lovingly, of course, and for your good. I do, speaking of emails being sent, I do apologize. I We probably should have sent an email out this week asking everyone to bring their headgear and a mouthpiece, Um, but we did it. Um, The the reality is, though, this morning, I'm going to say some uncomfortable things. They're going to be uncomfortable for me, uncomfortable for you. It's going to be fun. So now that I've I've set the expectation that this is going to be a heartwarming, feel-good, hallmark movie of a sermon... Let's jump in. Uh, So if you would, please go ahead and open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 12. We're going to look at verses 13 to 21. Luke 12, verses 13 to 21. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, if you don't own a Bible, uh, we have lots of free Bibles, and they're in the Connect Center. You can grab one of those after we're done because we want everyone who doesn't have a Bible who wants a Bible to have one. So please, we have free Bibles, so if you don't have one, grab one of those. Uh, But in the meantime, the verses are going to be on the screen behind me as we read. All right, well, hopefully uh, you've found your way there. Uh, If not, read the screen because we got to go. Luke 12, verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, Tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who appointed me a judge or arbitrator over you? Then he said to them, Beware, be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, this, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, you fool. This very night your soul is required of you. And now, who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Amen? Really, this parable could be called, instead of maybe the rich fool, it could be called the the greedy fool or the discontented fool or the covetous fool. This parable is opposite to the thinking of this world, and and as many things are that Jesus teaches, one commentator even says in writing about this parable that he knows of no more difficult topic to apply personally or to the lives of modern Western Christians. He says, because our primary pursuits are our own security and pleasure, both we think achieved by possessions. It's, so, this parable, it's, it's not about wealth or money or possessions or material things in and of themselves. It's, it's not that they're bad. It's how tightly we hold to them and how we use them or refuse to use them. It's not about uh, poor people or rich people. It's, uh, n- no ungodly poor people in the Bible are ever exalted as models to be emulated, and at the same time, no godly rich people who are generous and compassionate with their wealth are ever condemned in the Bible. The goal today is to lead us not into condemnation or into some some sense of guilt that will last just a little bit, uh, and we'll think about it for a little bit, and then we'll just go back to thinking uh, about all of this how we always did. Today, I just The goal is is more to bring something to the forefront of our minds that I think uh, many of us often don't think about. And then I want us to, to, with the help of the Holy Spirit, to uh, diagnose, if you will, our our hearts. This isn't me standing up here casting judgment either. Uh, I'm right in it with you. This is about all of us. And can I be honest? I don't know if I'm really supposed to do this when I'm up here, but I know this week, I was guilty of coveting and greed. This past week, when I've literally, for hours upon hours, for days, been studying how not to do that, that you shouldn't do that. What? (laughs) Can I be even more honest? Let me give you an example. I was scrolling through Facebook, as we often do these days, uh, and I came across a picture of a, a childhood friend of mine. Caveat. It's no one, any, not anyone here, no one here knows them, I promise. So don't try to figure out who it is, because I'm not even being funny. You don't know them. I came across a childhood friend of mine uh, and, uh, on my Facebook scroll, and it was a picture of him and his wife, and they were what seemed to, to look like anyways on some European vacation, Uh, And and do you know what the first thing I thought was? Good for them. I'm so happy that, that they are enjoying God and his creation and that he and his wife are able to enjoy these good things together. No! That's not what I thought at all. That's not the first thing. For some reason, my stupid, sinful heart said, jealously, might I add, what in the heck does he do for a living? Where does he get all this money? This is like the 15th vacation they've been on this year. <laughs> and immediately, all that I've been studying flooded my mind, and the Holy Spirit was like, um, Bro, that's called coveting. Congratulations, you just coveted this week. So <laughs> I'm, I'm in it. I'm in it with you. This is, so it's not me up here just hurling, judging. You're terrible. I'm like, No, I'm terrible. Amen. So our our set of verses this morning starts with Jesus teaching, and and a man uh, from the crowd shouts out. He says, teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. Uh, In ancient times, the firstborn was guaranteed a double portion of the family inheritance. That's just how it worked then. Um, More than likely, the brother who was addressing Jesus was not the firstborn, and he was asking for an equal share of the inheritance that he thought he was owed. It seems the, the man's interest wasn't in what he could learn from Jesus, but what he could gain financially from Jesus by having him side with him on this particular case. It seems like the man who yelled out had not really been listening to what Jesus was saying or teaching, but was more concerned about materialistic things. Here is Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior of all the world, God incarnate, in front of this guy, and he could have asked him anything, and he asked about an inheritance dispute, which kind of is revealing of his heart. So Jesus, though, in response, he refuses to, to arbitrate this dispute. He doesn't necessarily ch- directly uh, approach the topic that the guy asked for, but he also doesn't change the subject. Jesus is, is going to the heart of the issue, greed and covetousness. Jesus warns this person and, and all within earshot that our lives are not to be about gathering wealth Life is so much more than the abundance of possessions. You see, Jesus puts his finger on the questioner's heart. Jesus used this this man's plea for justice not to rebuke unjust oppressors, but to warn not only the man, but all the hearers, including his disciples, and ultimately including all of us, of the greater danger earthly wealth poses to every soul that craves it, and trusts in it. So, does Jesus not care about injustice, though? Of course Jesus cares about injustice, but in this instance, Jesus knew how deceptive and spiritually dangerous earthly wealth was to the man who cried out, and subsequently to all of us. Here is is where the, the deceptive nature Of the heart is such a challenge. We often can be guilty of masking our covetousness by claiming that we are on a righteous crusade. Our concern for justice can sometimes just be a mask for greed. We may fight and fight for what is ours, and in the end, really, having it may have done worse for us than if we had let go and let God take care of things. If we would have worried more about God and His kingdom. It's better to focus on God and His kingdom and be wronged than it is to allow greed to control our lives. That's hard. That's heavy. Do you believe it? It's hard to believe that. Jesus didn't come to to the world to to deal with temporary, trivial things though. He came to offer eternal, everlasting salvation. In light of the arrival of of God's kingdom, issues like who gets what in an inheritance uh, issue matters very little. Better to suffer loss and follow Jesus. Better to care for people, care about people, and relationships than it is to worry about what you think is owed to you. This isn't in my notes, but I don't think we want to talk about what's owed to us in the sight of God, God's eyes. (laughs) That's just a little little nugget for you. Jesus says, let me do something better. This is what he says to to the man instead of answering his question and saying, no, I'm not going to get into that. He says, let me do something better for you. And if each of the brothers with this inheritance issue would have really listened, they would learn the real meaning of life and would seek as their chief endeavor to be rich toward God. And and, and the question of possessions would have settled itself. The one would be eager to share while the other would have been careless to receive. Beware and be on guard. Beware and be on guard. Beware and be on guard. The key to understanding this parable, it's almost like Jesus says, uh, here's what the parable that I'm about to teach is about. So the key to understanding it is found in verse 15 when Jesus says just this, beware and be on guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. Jesus is is wanting us to be on guard, not only against money and what that can mean, but all forms of greed, the the desire to have more. Greed can oftentimes result in in disagreement and disharmony. The, The pursuit of possessions can make us insensitive to people if we're not careful. Greed can distort the reality of what life is and is about. We can start to believe that life is found in possessions and not in relationships with others, and most importantly, in relationship with God himself. We can start to believe that life is about stuff and not about loving God and loving people. What should we take care of or or be on guard against? Covetousness, greed, greed. Jesus here uses the Greek word for the sin that, that is, means a, a greedy desire for more. Jesus was saying that this can sneak up on you. It can be there, and you don't even realize it. Covetousness is very subtle, and it's often very difficult to detect, especially in ourselves. We don't really think about it much, it seems, Unless, of course, we are thinking of someone who is much, much better off financially than us. If, if, if everyone's being honest, though, when's the last time you really thought, really searched the depths of your heart, and really asked yourself, asked the Holy Spirit to reveal the, the truth about am I, am I being covetous? Am I greedy? I don't I would argue that I don't think it's often enough. Now, again, this is not about condemnation, but greed, uh, it's an internal sin, a, a form of covetousness or, or longing for what we haven't been given. It's less visible as obvious active sins that maybe are easier to detect. And, but however, greed is, is more evident in its long-term corrosion of our souls. It's also a sin, greed is, of faithlessness. Greed is the opposite of trust in God's provision. It's a a grasping of security instead of resting in Him. John Calvin says just that, the lack of faith is the source of greed. Covetousness is serious business. It can bring ruin to our soul through idolatry. What do I mean by that? When we we find comfort in, when we find security in, stuff and possessions and wealth more than we do in God, those things have become our functional God. Beware and be on guard. The idea is that we're all under attack from greed and covetousness, and we must protect ourselves from it. So if, um, if the police were going around in your neighborhood, uh, letting everyone know, hey, uh, we got to tell you, there's some criminals, they got loose somehow, uh, and they've been seen around your neighborhood. Um, You probably would uh, go do something about that. You would probably be like, "Mm, let me go check all my doors, make sure they're all locked. Let me go make sure all the windows are down and they're locked because there are some crazy criminals out here on the loose. They're around. Um, you, You would be more aware, be more alert We have to be more aware of of these things, of greed, of covetousness. We have to think about these things. We have to think about our propensities in order for us to, as Jesus says, beware, to watch out, to look out, to be on guard. How can we do those things if it has fallen to, to the back of our minds, if it's been buried deep down, or we always assume that greed and covetousness are not about us, but about someone else? We covet and are greedy when we don't just have possessions, but we love them. We hoard them. We can't stop thinking about them. We can't live without them. We have to have them. Even if I don't have the money, I'll go into debt to have them. Oops. (laughs) Greed is a terrible sin, but we often don't believe that. And worse yet, often we don't even think about it or consider it of ourselves. I've said that. I've said it so many times but I keep I'm going to keep saying it because I think it's true. I know it's true of me. I'll say that. Yet God knows that this is something that we are so easily prone to. He not only talks about it here but he talks about it many other places throughout the Bible. In fact, it's it's one of the 10 commandments, of the 10 most important things he said I need to tell my people. He said do not covet. And then another example, God tells the Israelites, he's, they're out in the wilderness, he's providing for them, manna, right? He has to tell them, don't take more than you need for each day. Guess what they did? Some of them took more than they needed for each day. They wanted more. Uh, one more example, Adam and Eve had everything they could need, perfect relationship with God, every resource at their fingertips. One thing, God said, there's one thing, don't do it, you don't need it. It's bad they did it. They wanted more. In case, though, let me say this. Uh, In case you don't think that this sermon has anything to do with you because you're not rich by American current day standards, let me say this. You don't have to be rich to be discontent. You don't have to be rich to be envious. You don't have to be rich to be consumed with the pursuit of wealth and the the pursuit of comfort. You don't have to be rich to be greedy, selfish, and non-generous. You don't have to be rich to long for more, to trust in stuff more than God. Wealth isn't the problem. It's covetousness. You can be covetous with very little. However, I would say, and I feel comfortable saying this, that the large majority of us, even here today, are wealthy when compared to the rest of the world all around us i would say majority of us here spend our money on things that are considered luxuries by many above and beyond our basic necessities and and i don't think that's true of a lot of the world not that there's anything wrong with those things i'm not again this isn't about stuff and having it it's about what you do with it it's about coveting and greed it's there's nothing wrong with having some things and enjoying them for god's glory. My point is, I think we often don't think of ourselves as rich, but I think we are, especially in the context of this. What do you think, what do you think the people back then were like? They, they, they didn't have access to the things we do now here. Most of us uh, have, have read this parable and thought like, yeah, good job, God. Get that rich man, that evil, greedy man. Man. Most of us don't read this parable and say, I am the rich man. I am greedy. I should be aware and be on guard. But, but I don't know why, because we are bombarded constantly with advertisements and marketing, TV commercials, radio commercials, billboards, bus signs, airplanes, and so much more, all saying, all enticing us to think that if we buy more and more of their products, we will be happier, more fulfilled, more comfortable. They say, you need this thing that I'm selling to be happy By this, it will fulfill you. It will make your life easier. By this, you deserve it. Don't settle for that thing you have. You need this new thing, this better thing, this bigger thing. The whole point of all of this that we are constantly being being bombarded with is getting you to covet, getting you to be discontented and unsatisfied with what you have. And so how do we Stand a chance against this if we are not on guard, if we are not on high alert, and battling these lies with the biblical truth of satisfaction in Christ alone. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. This is the overall principle that Jesus will develop in the, the, the parable that he goes on to, to speak about on material things when we live with this attitude that, that our life consists in what we possess, we live in covetousness and greed. And covetousness and greed, as I've said, is idolatry. And we can see that in, in Colossians 3.5. Paul lists that, among other things, that says all of this, bop, 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 these sins, including covetousness, is idolatry. Jesus isn't prohibiting wealth, again, and I'm going to say this, I'm going to be so sad and so disappointed if at the end of the sermon someone's like, I'm like, hey, what was the point of that sermon? And they're like, things and money, it's terrible. Rich people are the worst. I'm like, no, no. So I'm saying it a lot. (laughs) Jesus isn't prohibiting wealth, but he's clearly warning about the dangers and internal implications of wealth because of its seductive tendency towards complacency, self-sufficiency, and covetousness. Jesus goes on, and he tells the parable. Notice, though, the rich man uh, received more because his land was very productive, right? That's what it says. It had little to do with what he did, and a lot to do, if you think about it, with the soil, with, with the weather, the rain, the sunshine. God's provision and kindness blessed him. The man assumes his life is all about him, and he is the rightful sole owner of all he has. His language portrays him in the story. In our English translations of the Bible, of this story, uh, The rich man uses the the personal pronoun I six times and the possessive my five times in these six short verses of this parable. The, The rich man says, what shall I do? I will do this and that. I will tear down. I will build. He says, my grain, my goods, my barns, my, my, my. There's not a word of God when when the first thing that he should have done is give thanks to the giver of every good gift. The man in the parable was consumed with the gifts and forgot the giver. As we look at the parable, there is an absence of any reference to God. Instead, there's a selfish and arrogant sense of possession by right and not by grace. Romans 1 tells us that... uh, Two of the most basic sins of sinful man are a refusal to honor God as God and a refusal to be grateful. When we come to God in the spirit of thanksgiving, we're acknowledging that we have not produced the benefits that we have received, but rather we are the recipients of his tender mercy and bountiful grace. The rich man, his response also presents a problem of stewardship. He didn't see himself as God's steward, he saw himself as the owner. He was his own creator and sustainer. The man's response was okay, all right, I got all this stuff. I got this stuff that I maybe wasn't even expecting. It's an influx of, of wealth, of, of, of grain, of product, whatever. Okay, what do I do now? What do I do with the surplus? How can I store this up for myself? His response was not okay, Lord what would you what would you have me do with this how can i use this wealth this bounty that i've been given to help others and to serve you and i wonder how often maybe we do the same all that we have we have because we have been recipients of god's mercy and his bountiful grace we are but stewards God, in blessing us with plenty or, or excess, and giving us great oppor- is giving us great opportunity of, of doing good in generosity to those around us, giving us opportunity to trust in his provision as we give. The rich man was, though, showing an unrelenting, self-centered focus on the accumulation of excess goods and has no thought for anyone else. James in chapter two of his book and John in 1 John 3 uh, agree that if someone who is aware of his Christian brothers or sisters' material needs and is in a position to help, but does nothing about it, cannot be saved. St. Augustine says this um, about the rich man in this parable. He said, He did not realize that the bellies of the poor were much safer storerooms than his barns. Many times in the parable we see the pronoun my, 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 but never do we see my neighbor, my community, my church. How often are we the same? Covetousness and greed manifest itself in a lack of gratitude and generosity. Generosity. That's what we see in this parable. The rich man didn't stop to, to thank the Lord for his prosperity. He was dissatisfied with all that he had and wanted bigger and better barns so that he could store and hold more for himself. He strove to acquire more and more because he prized self-sufficiency instead of a life of dependence on God. Oof. <sighs> He did not seek to help the poor, and so he failed to trust that the Lord would continue to provide for him. Oh, man. Okay, this is it in my notes. I'm going to say it so fast. I'm only doing 13 to 21. Your homework is go read 22 to 33 because it's all connected. And, and read it in light of what we're talking about today. Okay. Uh, okay, okay, that's all. <laughs> uh we, we should, I can't, I literally can't, I can't. We'll have to provide lunch, and we're not prepared for that. Uh, just do it, go, go read those verses in light of, of what we're talking about today. Uh, we, should, we should take pause often and, and think about how many times we have had, unused maybe, excess of goods or property or luxuries accumulating around us without any thought of those in need around us again the point is not that you shouldn't have things that you enjoy that's not the point point. and i will be angry if that's what you get from this because <sighs> i'm doing my best to tell you that that's not what i'm saying or what this is about we should ask ourselves, do I hold possessions open-handedly up to God and allow Him to control them, or do I hold possessions and let them control me? Even though, as the parable says, he is already a rich man, right? Because the parable says there was a rich man and his land produced well, right? So he was already rich. So even though... He was already a rich man. He could only think of of himself in the accumulation of more possessions for his own enjoyment. The rich man says, I'm all set for for years to come. So now, I'm going to sit back. I'm going to take it easy. I'm going to eat, drink, and be merry. God's great gift and providence has been received, but now the question is, how is it to be used? all for ease and gratification of self. How foolish is it, though, to seek happiness and a worth that can never be found in material things. Having abundance, though, the rich man was now going to rest in comfort and ease. Um, I, I think, though, if we're being honest, and everyone, should, let's all be honest with ourselves... The rich man had essentially what most people believe will make them happy. Material wealth and security and a retirement of of leisure and entertainment ahead of him. That sounds good. Many around him would have coveted his lifestyle, and I think many today, many maybe even here, me, would covet it a little bit if we're not careful. Careful. Many commentators, theologians, and pastors, oh man, we're going to, this is going to be fun. Okay. Many pastors, commentators, theologians believe that this parable can also speak to our Americanized modern idea of retirement. What many of us think about retirement or have been taught is retirement looks very much like the rich fool's goal. Save your money. Build up your savings account and possessions. Worry about yourself so that you can live a life of uh, self-indulgency, ease, and carefree life. Retiring to a life of self-indulgence, though, finds no favor with God. Of course, the Bible recognizes aging and, and slowing down, but a retirement that lives for self is unbiblical and immoral. Even if you retire from work, from a job, you don't retire from Christ. The, the, goal, be sh- the goal should be to, to retire and invest with time and money in the lives of, of family, of friends, the, the church body, your neighbors, to lead groups, to serve the church not to focus on yourself and lay around in some place that's always sunny and pay someone to bring you drinks with little umbrellas and act as if you've already made it to heaven. That's not the point. John Piper once told a story at a conference of, of, of college students. He said three weeks ago, I think I'm going to make it through this, but every time I read this, I got weepy, so I'm going to try my hardest not to. So shh. (laughs) John Piper once told a story at a conference of college students. He said, three weeks ago, we got word at our church that Ruby Ellison and Laura Edwards had both been killed in Cameroon, he began. Ruby was over 80, single all her life. She poured it out for one great thing, to make Jesus Christ known among the unreached, the poor, and the sick. Laura was a widow, a medical doctor, pushing 80 years old. And serving at Ruby's side in Cameroon. The brakes failed, the car went over the the cliff, and they were killed instantly. And John... Piper goes on telling the story and says, and I asked my people, meaning the people at his church, he said, was was this a tragedy? No, Piper responded. This is not a tragedy, but I'll tell you what is. He then pulled out a page from Reader's Digest and read, Bob and Penny took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. Now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, Florida. Where they cruise on their 30 foot trawler, play softball, and collect shells. He continued, the American dream come to the end of your life, your one and only life, and let the last great work of of your time and your money be uh, to give an account to your Creator be I collected shells. See my shells? That, I submit to you, he goes on, is a tragedy. People today are spending billions of dollars to persuade you to embrace that tragic dream. Today, I'm here to plead with you, don't buy it. Don't waste your life. Now, it's wise to plan for retirement, but if we accumulate wealth only to enrich ourselves and have no concern for helping others, we will enter eternity empty-handed. The issue in the parable isn't wealth, but how wealth is directed. The sin, in accumulate, the sin is accumulating riches for oneself, hoarding possessions, holding them so tightly that you're too busy or don't have enough room for kingdom work, thinking that life can be secured by, by possessions, thinking that your stuff is truly yours alone. The comfort... That allows us to focus solely on ourselves is the product of greed. Let me say that again. The, the comfort that allows us to focus solely on ourselves is the product of greed. It's a matter of not worshiping your wealth, but instead worshiping with your wealth. Again, I, I have in here so many different ways to say this, but there's nothing wrong with money in and of itself. There's nothing wrong with having money. God even blesses people sometimes financially, but I'm telling you right now, this is one of those, oh man, I think you guys are going to really like this, or maybe not like it, because it goes against everything around us, against everything that we are bombarded with by this world, and unfortunately, sometimes even so-called preachers God doesn't bless you, though, financially so that you can focus solely on yourself and continue year after year after year to uh, raise your standard of living, to have more houses in different locations, to collect cars, to buy more expensive uh, clothing and watches and shoes so that you can do less and less and have more vacations and live in more luxury and more comfort. No, God doesn't bless you for that. He blesses you so that you might bless others, so that you will be generous on everything Every occasion so that you can generously give to kingdom work. Only when we are generous with money and possessions does God approve. We see this in, in 1 Timothy uh, 6, 17 and 19, and it says this, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or fix their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies all things to enjoy, instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, and to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. That's a companion verse, really, for for what we're talking about here today. I don't think God blesses you financially, so that you, by any means necessary, can live your best life now. I don't see that in here, nowhere. I don't see that in this book. Oh, it gets me, makes me want to fight somebody. With this, not my fist, because I would lose. If you like that, let me hit you with another banger. To selfishly accumulate possessions is incompatible with being a disciple of Jesus. And everything around us says the opposite. We have cultural sayings like YOLO, you only live once, this is as good as it gets, he who dies with the most toys wins, you do you, get rich or die trying. We must daily ask the Lord to renew our minds, to combat against all of these cultural values that surround us. The Lord says that as Christians, we will look different than the world around us, and we will spend our money differently than the world around us. We should strive to be good stewards of what God has entrusted to us, to work hard and invest well, to pay our bills, take care of our family, give to the church, give to the poor, help those in need make a difference for the glory of God. It should look different than the world around us. Here's what I think the Lord is also asking us to do. I think you're really going to like this as well. What I'm asking, I think what the Lord maybe is even asking, it's uncomfortable, but I I think he's asking us to truly look at our specific cases and consider what more we could do to give of the unused or unnecessary possessions that we have, to really look at our budgets and see where our money is truly going, to exercise self-control and to be different in a a culture that idolizes instant gratification instead of thanksgiving for all that God has blessed us with that that we didn't even deserve in the first place. The rich man was more concerned with being rich in this life and missed being rich with never-ending life. In contrast to the rich man who said, I'm going to take it easy, I'm going to eat, drink, and be merry, God says, you fool This very night, your soul is required of you. You fool. This should cause us to to stop and pay attention, to take it seriously. God is not messing around here. God rejects this man's greed and covetousness and demands his soul. A fool as defined by the Bible, it, it doesn't have anything to do with intelligence or lack thereof, but a lack of knowledge and submission to God. The Greek term here used for fool is the same as the one used in Psalm 14, one that says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. The Greek word for fool is often used to refer refer to someone who refuses to acknowledge dependence on God. Someone who either acts without thought of God or without a care for potential destruction. The fool leaves God out of the picture. He thinks he has security in possessions, but possessions don't give security and life doesn't consist of stuff. All of this man's worry and and thought and, and care and labor and planning of his wealth and possessions, it all crumbles by God's command. God demands this man give an account of his soul. And unfortunately for this man... His possessions and wealth cannot pay the debt. The use he plans to make of his wealth says one thing. My treasure is relaxing, eating, drinking, and fun. That's it. That's my life. And the riches in my barn, they make that possible. Seeking money and possessions for comfort only provides a fleeting and false sense of security, though. It's a vain effort at control. It won't bring us any comfort when we stand before God. This man is the opposite of what a disciple looks like, according to to what Jesus says, because he taught that a disciple is to deny self and is to uh, lose your life in order to save it. And thinking of planning of this life, though, the rich man forgot the next And thinking of time, he forgot eternity. And thinking of the future, he failed to remember his mortality. You see, the rich man, in his self-centered perspective, thought it was a good strategy for a long life of leisure and pleasure. But God sees things much differently. The the rich fool is so preoccupied with gaining and maintaining, maintaining his possessions that he has become idolatrous. He ends up placing all his trust and, and faith in his possessions, and therefore he becomes a practical atheist. How? Well, we've talked about it. Maybe he, he wouldn't say that, though. Maybe he wouldn't say, I'm, an, I'm not an atheist. Of course, I believe in God. But by, He wouldn't say that by word, but by deed, he does, in fact, say there is no God. I am God. My money is God. When, when you think about it, when we compare this to what God offers, which is eternity with him, filled with the foolish joy and forever pleasures, there's no wonder Jesus calls this man a fool in the parable. This man has traded a few years of comfort and relaxation for an eternity with the God who made him and loves him and would have satisfied him when nothing else truly could. There's a story of, of two men who are dying at the same time? A, a rich worldly man and a Christian godly man who sought God in his kingdom. The rich man says to those around him, something like, Are you wondering why I I can't be so relaxed, be so calm and, and happy and at peace, as this other guy pointing to the, the Christian man? He says, It's because he is going to his treasure and I must leave mine. The issue isn't that the man's field prospered. The issue is that God ceased to be his supreme treasure. God then asked the rich man, who will own what you have prepared? The point here isn't that like um, God's not like, hey, uh, I just wanted to check, do you have a will? Who are you going to leave this to? Your your kids, your, your mom, your dad, your family? That's not the point. The point isn't like, God's like, hey, I'm just checking. I want to make sure that you have some stuff set up. No, the point God is making here is, is that there's one person who's not going to enjoy it, and that's you. The answer for who is not going to, to own what you have prepared is you. I, I don't know why, but I kind of feel like this is like God being a little snarky. Like, like, guess What? you trusted in all your wealth and possessions. You thought that's what mattered most. You wanted to live a life of comfort then and there, not give to those in need. Well, guess what? Now you're here in front of me, dead. Now who's going to get to enjoy all that stuff you stored up? Guess what? It ain't you, bro. The rich fool didn't realize that he owned nothing. All he had, even his very life, was on loan from God and could be called in at any time. It's kind of ironic, don't you think, that the man who had taken great care to prepare for his own earthly needs turns out to be the fool. Instead of caring for the needs of others, he was laying a treasure for himself and not being rich towards God. So Jesus ends this parable, and then he says so is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. To be truly rich is to be rich towards God. It's not about what we can get for ourselves, it's about what we can offer to Him. God, I want you to have everything, every part of me. I am but a steward. I don't own anything, including the very breath in my lungs. It's not mine, it's yours. The true Christian steward understands that everything they have belongs to God. God is the owner of their their body, their time, even the buttons on their shirt, their children, their money, their possessions. To claim God's possessions as your own is not only arrogant, it's foolish. The, The focus of our lives, though, will determine the use of our possessions, The focus of our lives will determine the use of our possessions. If we are most concerned about ourselves and and focus on ourselves selfishly, we will use our money and our possessions to, to make ourselves feel happy, to make our lives more comfortable, to bring relaxation, to limit surprises of hardship. But if the focus of our lives is God and his kingdom, how we use our money and our possessions will look much different than what the world around us says. The mind of the steward is to reflect the mind of the master. The the heart of the steward is to reflect the heart of the master. The generosity of the steward is to reflect the generosity of the master. Being rich towards God, how do we do that? I mean, we've kind of been talking about it, but how did Jesus tell us to do that? And I can't get into this. I wanted to, but I can't because time. But So how do we do that? How are we rich towards God? Well, one way is to love God and love people. Sound familiar? Trust in God and not in things. Love Him and be generous to others. That's one way we are rich towards God. Being rich towards God means living to glorify God and investing our earthly assets to make an eternal difference. Being rich towards God includes faith, serving, and obedience. Being rich towards God means the spreading of His gospel. We even know, though, uh, just from the broader context of the book of Luke, that being rich towards God includes caring for the poor and being generous to those in need. We lay, we lay up treasures for ourselves by gathering and for God by giving. We can't get things twisted, though. Uh, giving to the poor is not what will pay our way into eternity with God our Father only faith and trust in Jesus and his finished work will suffice. No righteousness of our own will ever be good enough. No deeds that we've done will ever work. This sounds familiar. Sounds like the song we were singing right before this. Only if we come with hands held open and empty, confessing that we have nothing to offer of ourselves, But we are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus through faith, trusting that He has paid our way into eternity with our Heavenly Father. Only that will do. Nothing that we do will matter. So we can't pay our way into heaven by giving. I want to make that clear. Uh, To to that end, John Piper says this. Ooh, two John Piper quotes. Uh, The kingdom of God. I figured I'd say it before someone else said it. Uh, The kingdom of God, this is what John Piper says, the kingdom of God is a gift, not a purchase. It's given, not earned. But it is a gift to those who want it more than they want things. It's a gift to those who seek it more than they seek things. It's a gift to those who fear missing it more than they fear not having earthly security. It's a gift to those who trust the king more than the dollar. We don't buy the kingdom when we scale down our material lives and sell things so that we can give. We show that we value the kingdom more than things. Selling your possessions and giving rather than accumulating more and more things for yourself is the pathway to the kingdom, not the payment for the kingdom. It's proof that you love the kingdom more than possessions, that you trust the king more than money. Someone who can't give to others, hear this, hear this, someone who can't give to others doesn't believe that God gives to him. Someone who can't part with his things doesn't believe the treasures of heaven are better. When we put more time and effort into obtaining wealth and possessions in this life than we do in pursuing the the things of the kingdom of God, it might reveal something about the desires of our hearts. If if we think about, if if we talk about is is more stuff, what we just bought, what we want to buy, what we're going to buy, what we saw someone else had that we want, it might reveal something about the desires of our hearts. To this end, Thomas Watson, a Puritan pastor said, most men pray more for full purses than for pure hearts. We are more concerned with having more money than being more holy. The sooner we get over the illusion that more stuff, more money means more peace, happiness, and self-fulfillment, the better off we will be. And then the more able we will be to find the longed for peace and happiness, the true good life that only Jesus can provide. If we cherish money and possessions so much that the thought of eternity with Jesus loses its attraction, we can be sure that the stuff around us has become more valuable to us. The treasure that we possess has been misplaced. We can't let the the enjoyment of temporary possessions diminish the appeal of what's eternal. The things of the world are poverty, complete poverty, when compared to the glories of eternity with Christ. The things of this world, the wealth, the possessions, the material things are not permanent, and I think that we oftentimes lose sight of that. Especially here, especially now. Only those things that are invested with God are permanent. And how do we invest in God? We've talked about that, everything we already talked about. The priority of our lives must be set on God, the one thing that is eternal. We can't let greed for temporary things keep us from eternal treasure. As a disciple of Jesus, the only way to clearly understand the nature of wealth and possessions is to have an eternal perspective. Real life is found in God, in the finished work of Christ, in His offer of forgiveness of sins, in, the, uh, in His values, in being faithful in light of His immense goodness towards us and in His reward. Real life is found in being rich towards God and not things. We must value the riches of God above other riches. We must value Christ and His grace and the gospel more than any earthly possession or treasure. We have to believe the truth that the real measure of our wealth is what will be ours in eternity. So in, in wrapping up, I want to say to, to live our lives only for self-interest is completely antithetical to the gospel of Christ. We we must believe that the poorest people in the world are those who don't have the kingdom of God, who don't have Jesus. Because that's our greatest need. When we seek God in His kingdom, we have our greatest need met. But, as you will see if you go read those verses we talked about, when we seek God in His kingdom, our lesser needs are also provided for by Him which then frees us up to not have to worry or be afraid of uh, how am I going to eat? Where where are my clothes? How am I going to pay this bill? Read those verses because that's what it's saying and I'm trying not to preach it. We don't have to worry though. We don't have to worry if we see God in his kingdom because then God is more than happy to provide our needs. He's more than happy to provide what ultimately matters, which are his riches. We have to truly believe this. We could have anything and everything in the world But without Jesus and his kingdom, we are broke. We have to get that. Hammer that into our minds. Hammer that into our hearts. We could have anything and everything in this whole world, but if we don't have Jesus, we are broke. Life doesn't consist of the abundance of possessions or wealth, but in the abundance of Christ. Jesus' life would have looked like a great tragedy to many today. He lived poor... He never started a business. He had no children, no nest egg, no retirement. He died in his prime, some might even think. But every hour, every minute, every second of his life was spent seeking first the kingdom of God for you and for me. The key to being rich towards God is to look to Jesus and see how he has been rich towards us. 2 Corinthians 8-9 says, Though he was rich... Yet for your sake, he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. He left the heavenly riches his father had lavished on him to give his life for fools of every kind who could never find him on their own. He left the crown for the cross, he left the throne for the grave everlasting life for temporary death, praise for shame, justification for condemnation, righteousness for wickedness. He left and gave everything. Jesus and his kingdom are what matter most, not things. We can find joy, comfort, peace, our worth not in money, but in Christ. We can trust not in possessions that will fail us, but in Jesus who never will. How can we not be rich towards God when He has brought within our reach the the very unsearchable, unfathomable riches of Christ? If we put faith in Christ alone, Jesus has secured for us an eternal, everlasting inheritance. Christ shares that inheritance with us. What belongs to Jesus will also belong to us. Christ gives us His glory, His riches, and all things. We are as welcome in God's family as Jesus is because we are accepted in the beloved. All that belongs to Jesus Christ will belong to us as well. Think of all that means. Everything that God owns belongs to us because we belong to Him. Our eternal inheritance as co-heirs with Christ is a result of the amazing grace of God. Ephesians 2.3 says, In Christ Jesus... You who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. God took us, poor orphans in this world, and made us a part of His family through faith in Jesus Christ. He showered us with His blessings and promised us an eternal inheritance based on the worthiness of Christ Himself. May we find satisfaction in Christ alone let's pray Jesus thank you for all that you have done for us thank you for saving fools like us thank you that though you were rich for us you became poor thank you that that you paid the debt of our sin a debt that that we never could have paid we are in all that you would do that for us And all that you've done, and and all we have to do to believe that is to put faith in the finished work of Christ. We are in awe that you freely give. Lord, thank you that you give us good gifts, that you provide for all of our needs. Help us to be good stewards of all that you have entrusted us with. Everything we are and have belongs to you, God. Help us to know that, to believe that because it is the reality. May we live in light of that. Keep us from becoming so earthly focused in pursuit of money and possessions that we diminish and don't look forward to our eternal treasure, to eternity with you, Jesus. Help us to not worship money and possessions, but to worship with money and possessions. Help us to be radically generous people, Help us to to not selfishly accumulate wealth and possessions, but to to be different than the world around us. God, help us to, to give to those in need, to give to the poor, to think less of ourselves, to invest in what is eternal and not in what is temporary. God, may we care more about relationships with others and with you than we do about getting what we think we are owed. Help us to be aware and to be on guard against our propensity towards greed and covetousness. Help us by your Spirit to be rich towards you, God. Help us to not place our trust in money, wealth, or possessions, but may we trust in you, Jesus, who is more than enough. To trust in you, Jesus, who will fully and totally satisfy like nothing and no one else can.